Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You, on the other hand, well, you're a pit of despair. You disgust me. You disgust everyone. The Great Impost has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man. Good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we have a first-time guest, a guy who has been called the wokest man in America. But Vlad, I just have one question. How do you pronounce your last name? That is an excellent question. So this yeah. has been actually a huge source of like existential angst for me. So in Romanian, where my family is from, it'd be pronounced Kita. I grew up saying uh. Chicha. That is because my mom was very conscious of us being immigrants. Like my mom didn't want me to learn Romanian. And I asked her why one time. And she was like, cause you're fucking, cause you're American. Um, <laughs> if, if I wanted you to speak Romanian, we'd be living in Romania. Like why would you? So she was always very, you know, very much like it's Chituk. But that always sounded really weird to me. So the way I've landed is like, you know, past like age 29, I started saying Chituk. Also, um, first time guest, what do you mean? Tamler? I know. Tamler, I how could you? <laughs> Were you on you the podcast? How could you forget? Eight years ago, my guy. Fucking talking about wokeness at Yale. I am so hurt. I left such a little impression know, on you that Are you, you forget me so many years later. Tambler. Tambler. Episode 80. Episode 80. Of where absolutely, if I may, mopped the floor with you two. Oh, my God. That's terrible. Should I re-record? No, I can't leave it in. It. Let the world know no, your shame. Just, but like in your memory, how do you know Vlad? I met him at Duke. Yes, yeah, yeah. and like Twitter, we you know like, and I guess I just totally forgot about that episode. That, Look, I forgot yeah. that we did Memento with Paul Bloom. Like you're in a good so company. Uh, yeah, you did. To this day, I will go to conferences, and without fail, at least one or two people will come up to me and be like, "Are you Vlad from Very Bad Wizards?" And I'll be like, "Yes, hello, it's so nice that, to meet you." That's... I'm just I actually re-listened to it recently because I was like, "Oh yeah, I wonder how that holds up." How does it hold up? Um, you huh. just dunked on us the whole time. I wouldn't right? say dunked. I my ADHD was unmedicated at the time, so I do think I was talking over y'all a fair bit, <laughs> and I sound a lot gayer than I remember. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is say, ironic because yeah. I'm gayer now than I was then. So, you know, time, this is Vlad's official coming out. Coming yeah, it's out funny. No, it's funny. At the end, we're saying uh, we we're like talking about how like oh, I'm a straight white man. It's like what are you know? And then I was like, oh, that was cute. I don't know who I was kidding. Uh, so. <laughs> Oh, so you're actually gay? Well, I'm bi. Uh, you know, I don't like it. I don't like the term bisexual because like gender is obviously not a binary or whatever. I think like pansexual um, aesthetically sounds gross, and I hate the way it sounds. And I think if I say like yeah. queer, that's maybe like more accurate. But um, 
I feel like God, it's like you really posing. are the wokest. They don't call him the wokest man in America for now. No, no, sir, they don't. But yeah, no, it's like I've I've also got a long term girlfriend. Um, so in many ways, I would say even my straight relationships a little bit gay. Um, so uh, no follow, no follow, no follow. Yeah, let's just leave, let's one. just let that one go. Yeah, it was a beautiful. By day. the way, you know, I spent a, a semester at Duke when Vlad was an RA there, and. Um, I feel like I told you every other day, are you sure yeah. you're not gay, man? Yeah. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> I will say there's like, I think there were also two sources of anxiety. One, which was like, I felt like I wasn't like bi enough to be bi. Whereas like, it felt like my like men to woman attraction ratio wasn't right. Whereas like, I'm being a poser. And then my friend was like, Vlad, there's no, there isn't like the gay police. We're going to be like, you don't like men enough to be bisexual. It's like, you have to jerk off to like this much gay porn before you officially classify as bi. And then the second thing, which is, um, I blame gay men for this. Um, as a like straight presenting man, I got like more aggressive attention from gay when men than I When were you straight wanted. presenting? That's a good joke. Thank you, Tower. <laughs> I appreciate that. When I was telling people I was straight, I still got more unwanted attention from gay men than I think I wanted. And like having the like, I'm flattered, but I'm straight thing in your pocket is a, a really nice um you yeah. to fall back on and now i don't have that so now whenever a man's interested in me i have to be like sorry i don't find you attractive and that's just painful um, <laughs> yeah well can't you just for, still say it like they're lie. Like, um yeah i guess but that seems this is this is not a liar this is a man who donated his kidney to a company yeah we're talking about how ethical i am on this episode this, this episode <laughs> dedicated to how good a person i personally am yeah so we're going to be talking about yeah. Vlad's kidney donation and effective altruism and its critics um, in the second segment. But first, if you want to find out whether you're gay enough to be officially bi, maybe that's something neuroscience could help with. <laughs> I mean, that seems way more reasonable a claim than what we're about to talk about. <laughs> so this is actually like this- a, a good philosophical question, I think. If you're in your subjective, like phenomenal experience, if you don't experience any attraction to say like the same gender, um, but your brain says you do, yeah. are you actually... if you have dorsolateral prefrontal <laughs> cortex yeah. A- activation, yeah. I don't know the answer. <laughs> well, but you know, it's interesting, like to be serious for a second, people have done that with pl- penile plethysmography to try to figure out whether or not. Like some states have tried to use this to try to determine whether or not people were were pedophiles. Like, or wait, is that the British pronunciation? Wait, pedophiles. how? By so penile plethysmography is essentially just uh, you put a like a a little ring around your penis and it measures blood flow. Mm. And so they show you pictures or videos or whatever of like little kids. To, that's that's what I don't know. I assume I assume it's something like that. You would have to ask the the prosecuting attorneys in those states. It's not I don't think it's uh, very well validated, but people have have tried to use it. Um, yeah, that's, right. a, that's There's a, a big yikes for me. I got to say, because you yeah. think you're like it would go off. I, I, it's more <laughs> the fact that I think like it seems kind of weird that like prosecutors are showing people kitty porn to figure out if yeah. they're a pedophile where it's like. I don't know. That seems a little weird to me. Call me woke, yeah. but I feel like we shouldn't be they're showing called, people called justice. <laughs> there's, in fact, there's research in psychology. I've, I've never seen this replicated or not, but there is a, a fairly well-known study where they showed men who claim to be straight, like Vlad used to, and uh, who say they're gay, and the group of men that were bisexual. And so they, they wanted to find out whether or not men who said they were bisexual were <clears throat> showing more 
uh, arousal to straight porn or, or gay porn. And what they found was that men who claimed to be bi bisexual were much more like the pattern of, of gay men than they were of uh, uh, straight men. Now, take that with a grain of salt. I don't know that it's been replicated, and I don't know that anybody will ever try doing <laughs> that study again. But we're not talking about that. No, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. We're not about. talking about none any of this. this. Yeah, sorry for throwing a weird wrench into our discussion by just being like, LOL, last time I was out here, I said it was straight. Um, yeah, but also, LOL, you said last time you were on here, you were unmedicated for your ADHD, and yeah. somehow we're supposed to believe that you are this time around. And today's a no meds yeah. day, so <laughs> that explains something. What do you mean a no? Why would you have a no meds day? So I don't no, have no meds days. Um, are you on ADHD meds? Might we're on everything. So. We're, on, we're <laughs> on what we can get. Nice. Um, it's So some, some people recommend it, some people don't. It's to prevent building a tolerance. So usually mm. on weekends, and we're recording this Sunday evening. Um, I typically don't take my uh, stimulants unless I'm like grading or something. Um, yeah. So today was a, I'm, I'm, hit, uh, I'm raw dogging my brain as it were. <laughs> right. Sorry, maybe cut that one. Too. I don't know. I don't. It's like I'm gonna be on the market soon. Maybe I should be a little more. That's good. Like, like that's you have the exact like wrong instincts. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, this, this is make, great. I like unmedicated you. Vlad. It's all good. Cool. I don't do those though, and I have built up a tolerance. I think so. You're probably doing the right yeah. thing. Um, yeah. So what talking, are we talking about, Dave? We're talking about a paper that came out in a journal that I did not know existed called Nature Climate Change, um, which I guess is a subsidiary of Nature, called Leveraging Neuroscience for Climate Change Research. This is a paper that came out not too long ago, caught my attention by somebody's tweet. We weren't even going to do it because it seemed like a facile thing uh, for us to talk about. But but God damn it. Now we have a bi man's yeah. perspective on it. So. <laughs> I think that's about as that's helpful right. as a neuroscience perspective on climate change. So let's do yeah, it. About <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is an article that is basically saying, like, look, um, you know, we know that the environment is in trouble. What can neuroscience do to combat this? But also, let's understand what climate change does to the brain and how the knowing about the brain can help us with climate. And um, it's just one of these papers that is like the wrong level of analysis, but like three or four leaps down straight to the brain talking about how MRIs can help us combat <laughs> the damage that we've done to the environment. Now, my understanding is that it costs a little bit more money to put these kinds of figures in uh, to a paper. I'm going to include this as chapter art because the claim that they're making here is that there is a reciprocal relationship between the brain and a changing environment. Now, we know that for readers of Nature Climate Change, that's a complicated thing to wrap your head around. So what they've done is they've got a, basically like a clip art globe with an arrow going to like a clip art head with a little brain in it. And then an arrow going back, going back to the globe. And one of them says path A, environment to brain. And the other one says path B, brain to environment. It <laughs> is like I, I want like people pause the episode and look at the chapter. <laughs> art. Yes, it's hilarious. And so, you know, there's there are a couple of gems, though, in, in here that I wanted to bring up. One I'm bringing up for Tamler specifically. One of the sections is talking about climate change anxiety. So this is a new kind of anxiety that the younger kids are dealing with quite a lot. Now, you might think 
that this is, well, we're anxious about lots of stuff, right? We're, we're anxious about, you know, the risk of AI and, and whether or not our parents are going to die or something like that. But Mostly the risk of AI. <laughs> mostly the risk of AI. But then it says, however, climate anxiety appears to be distinct from other forms of anxiety. And they put a reference in there. And so I went to look at the reference and it is a scale of climate change anxiety that was developed and validated <laughs> just to show, look, there's anxiety and there's climate change anxiety. And so the authors go on to say, look, since it's different, we should really look in the brain to see what makes it different. <laughs> Vlad, Vlad is holding his hands together in prayer. Uh, um I, I know some folks who are on this paper um, and I respect the work they they do a lot. So I don't want to be too mean. I, you know, maybe I'm not the target audience for this because I think in general, I'm very skeptical about how useful an understanding of the brain can be for behavioral issues, just, you know, in general, like let alone like social issues. I'm not even sure an understanding of like psychology is helpful once we're like, <laughs> right. talking at that level, like let alone the brain. So I think at that, at that point, it's, you know, um, we're just talking to people who I think have very different sort of um scientific commitments than than i do but it's not like this is just oh like i'm not a wes anderson fan so i'm not the target audience like you have the right position the kind of obviously yeah. right position I, th I think papers like this pop up every so often i think this kind of thing was really common during covid too and there are some papers like what can neuroscience tell us about you know fighting poverty i'm sure or like what can behavioral science tell us about fighting covid or whatever yeah. um and every time i see one of those i'm kind of like who wanted this? Like, who was the person? Was it, are there like climate scientists out there who are like, you know what we really need to like help address this? Um, a better understanding of the neural correlates for what happens when you look at virtual reality trees compared to real trees. I suspect that probably isn't what happened. You know, I know exactly how these get written because we've been, we've been probably part of papers like this. Like, um, somebody says, hey, I want to write a review paper on this topic. Like, I'm really interested in this. Like, do you want to come along for the ride? Right. I think that's how like that COVID paper got written with like all of the like how to use behavioral science yeah. to help COVID because there's like 30 <laughs> yeah. authors or whatever, you know, and people are just like, all right, sure. Like I'll give I'll add my two sentences in there or whatever. And then they get like it's ridiculously high citation count. I, w I wanted to bring up a, just a few more things. So they they talk about these two paths, right, how the environment affects the brain. And here's where they talk about like, look, changes in the environment, like climate change, like heat waves and other weather events clearly like influence the brain. So for instance, like uh, everything else, each, yeah. <laughs> yeah. higher temperatures increase human and non-human mortality, decrease cognitive performance and ability to learn, decrease self-control and have been associated with increases in crime rates and civil conflict. Each standard deviation increase in temperature or extreme rainfall has been shown to increase the frequency of interpersonal violence by 4% and intergroup conflict by 14%. Amazing precision on those numbers. <laughs> yeah. So let me talk about like poor air quality. And then they're like, and you know, like weather events stress you out. So we we can learn about stress by looking at the brain, you know. So when when you literally yeah. in the future, when we have like limited access to food and water yeah. and people are like freaking out, we'll know that, that <laughs> it's this part of the brain <laughs> that was involved in you freaking out. Um, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. This, when they talk yeah. about climate anxiety. That was the yeah. ventral striatum. Uh, <laughs> you're like, and that's going to be huge. I mean, I suppose like they could just medicate you. Maybe there's something about the readouts, but mostly even that it's like, 
probably the best way they learn about like how to medicate it is by like testing like what effects <laughs> the medication have on the people. Path B is, I think, even more absurd. Neuroscience can investigate the neural substrates of the cognitive and affective processes that result in pro-environmental or environmentally harmful behaviors. Research yeah. along this pathway. I like that they call it a pathway as if that's a thing. The pathway of like <laughs> looking at our brain can be informed right. by neuroscientific subdisciplines such as neuroeconomics or social neuroscience. Like, those it's, credible fields <laughs> should aim to identify neural correlates of human emotions, cognitions, decisions, and behavior that positively or negatively impact the environment. Many human judgments and decisions related to climate change are influenced by psychological barriers, cognitive biases, and heuristics that are not necessarily accept accessible to conscious introspection. <laughs> Box one. So, Try to make sense of how they think neuroscience is going to address this. Like how, like, <laughs> like in an ideal world that they actually really could figure out, oh, that's, you know, discounting the future or whatever is like a little like more activated in that region of the brain. Like, obviously that's bullshit anyway, but like, even if you could get that, what are they going to do? Yeah. So actually I agree with everything they said. And I, I think neuroeconomics and social neuroscience or a lot firmer maybe than you do. So then you are a perfect person to answer the question. So I think yeah. like this kind of like a marry the color scientist thing, but like marry the climate scientist. I think you can know every single fact about the brain and how that relates to like different psychological whatevers you care about as it relates to the climate. I still think that probably gets you no closer to actually solving climate change. Like I just don't, I don't know what the steps are supposed to be from like the, okay, there's this pies towards like taking this climate, whatever behavior to like, okay, here's how we fix it. Where it's like, I don't think like knowing about the brain is going to get you to like, you know, even if we accept that, say. Wait, help me understand how those two claims that you just said are consistent. I think neuroeconomics and social neuroscience yeah. are on firm ground, but I think that you could know all the facts about the brain and it wouldn't help you solve the problem. That's yeah. what they're claiming. Yeah, but it's, but it's like it's a it's a fundamentally psychological solution to, I think, a social problem. Like, I think you can, like, do all the nudges you want, like, do all the interventions you want at the individual level. But, like, you know who's really excited about intervention, you know, individual level interventions? Like, the oil, like, the fossil fuel companies. Like, the idea of a carbon footprint was, like, created by fossil fuel companies to, like, offload the responsibility. Like, I think this is, like, a policy level issue. Like, I don't think you're going to solve no, this, this with, like, individual level interventions. That's not, the pro that's not the question, though. The question yeah. is, Assume a benevolent CEOs of every yeah. like energy company, they just want to help the environment. How would this neuroscience help? How would you use it to help promote good behavior? I don't think you would. I mean, like if you know that the, there are these like barriers where, you know, folks are, you know, I'm trying to think of like something concrete. Uh I don't know. I'm kind of I'm kind of blanking. But, maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to steal man this too hard. Um, I'm having a hard time actually thinking of like anything that actually. But helpful. like this this is the issue. Like the neuroscience part. Like even what you said, Vlad. Where maybe maybe there's the the hope that individual level psychological interventions are going to do something, which you're suspicious of. But like I'm even willing to grant that. Like where you do some nudge that actually works to get people to recycle yeah. more or to use less energy. Like that might work. The The brain part is just like what really annoys me is the co-opting of all of behavioral science into somehow brain science. Yeah. So they're talking about nudges and biases and, and behaviors. And they're like, so obviously the brain matters. Well, 
no shit. Like at some, in some way it matters, but there is nothing that I can think of that would get you from um, neural correlate of thinking about pro-environmental behaviors to like actually getting a person to do a pro, like, let alone what is a pro-environmental behavior? Like, are they talking about recycling? Are they talking about like donating to causes? Like it's unclear the whole way through. It's completely unclear. The only thing they ever get close to talking about interventions wise is kind of crazy, but like is at least an an experimental manipulation. And that's when they talk about transcranial magnetic stimulation to try to get people to think differently about, let me pull up this. So they say brain stimulation techniques, moreover, allow researchers to causally test psychological models of sustainable decision-making by experimentally manipulating the underlying neurocognitive processes. It's just MK ultra, but for like <laughs> yeah. good environment. Right. One recent study used transcranial brain stimulation to test the hypothesis that an inability to take the perspective of future generations generates a lack of sustainable behavior. <clears throat> Consistent with this hypothesis, upregulating activation in a region involved in mentalizing increased sustainable decisions in an intergenerational economic dilemma task. That's it's batshit. Like I I I I don't understand even how they think that um something as complex as a sustainable decision, like whatever that is, quote unquote, sustainable decision-making, that that is somehow represented uniquely in the brain, let alone like that it's a natural kind kind of decision. Like presumably there's all kinds of different decisions we make that impact the environment and different things might influence the way we think about, right? Like what I think about when I think recycling is seems very different than what I think about when I think about eco-friendly hunting practices or something yeah like that's all just the thought that this would just show up in the brain and that you could get a magnet to like make people more liberal about the environment <laughs> is fucking insane like this is insanity yeah like the, why are like who is uh, so, so I, have two, I have two thoughts about that <clears throat> first um i have no idea in what version of the world we live in where like the <laughs> you know, the barriers to getting like genuine climate interventions like passed politically is like too high, but like the barriers to getting like neuroscience <laughs> interventions to get people to do climate change interventions, like that's attainable. And the second point is like, I could almost guarantee whatever money and energy you're spending on getting people TMS to make better climate decisions is going to be better spent just like buying you know land in the amazonian rainforest to protect like there's no version of right. the world yeah. where that's, that's that trade-off does not work out of of course like everything you're saying about that is i think obviously true i i i think i'm with david in thinking people don't get how batshit crazy this is <laughs> so, this yeah. is like this is like me when i start talking about ufos and ghosts this is like <laughs> Uh, this this isn't scientific and it has like a philosophical orientation that I don't even understand what their assumptions are. So let me so here's uh, they're talking about questions for path B. That's the one where our study of the brain is going to help us become better environmentalists. And maybe we, we can make sense of it. But it says neuroscience has moreover provided insights into the neural representations of different types of actions impacting the environment. For example, in one recent study, when instructed to think about ways to increase their pro-environmental behaviors, for example, taking the train, participants showed increased activity in brain regions involved in reward integration. 
Conversely, when those participants were instructed to think about decreasing environmentally harmful behaviors, for example, lowering the heating, they showed increased <laughs> activity in, in, in regions involved in loss anticipation and cognitive control. <laughs> in, interesting. Turning the, turning the heat off turning, in, during the winter it, it, makes me somehow different, feel different than doing it. Interestingly. They judged increasing pro-environmental behaviors to be more feasible than decreasing their environmentally harmful behaviors. Again, that's nothing to do with neuroscience. That's just what they... This right. disassociation at the neural level may help to better understand why people are able to adopt new pro-environmental behaviors while simultaneously continuing to persist with environmentally harmful habits. This disassociation may help get a better conceptual grasp on processes such as cognitive dissonance and their role in the context of sustainable actions. This is the thing that I don't get. Like I like I if one of these authors were here, I would ask them, explain to me, like walk me step by step from the neuroscience. We get the neuroscience of this and I will grant you whatever, uh, you know, vision of judging the brain. Oh, they were thinking of lowering the heat. Um, and also like <laughs> grant them whatever they want with that. How is this going to help us prevent people from having this kind of cognitive dissonance that leads them to environmentally harmful behaviors? I want to read the exact same passage, but with like committing eco-terrorism and like assassinating <laughs> the CEOs of oil companies instead of like turning down but the that's heat. That's a different question, <laughs> right? Like, yes, of course, this is going to get co-opted by like powerful interests and all of that, like if it worked. But how is it supposed to even work? It's it's like the most inefficient route to, yeah. to like actually making a change. It's, it's ineffective uh, psychology. Yeah. Call, calling it inefficient <laughs> is like too complimentary or at least it's not just like a yeah, yeah Rube Goldberg. Goldberg machine like it's not that it's that it's that it does it's a machine that doesn't do and can't do the thing that you want it to do yeah no I think yeah I think I but agree with that. my phrasing of batshit crazy yeah. then is more out. there's a section that is I think like one of the most dystopian things I've ever ever read in a science paper so right. do y'all see the part where they're talking about like virtual reality um so yes. they say Findings on the restorative benefits of nature exposure have moreover motivated research on whether technological advances, such as immersive virtual simulations of nature, can convey some of the same restorative benefits when direct access to nature is not possible. Yeah. For example, due to adverse impacts of climate change, such as heat waves, exposure to virtual nature has indeed been found to confer similar benefits, including reduced boredom and pain, increased positive affect, and improved cognitive performance and well-being. Future research may combine actual and virtual nature exposure with neuroimaging approaches to better understand the processes under underlying the restorative impact of nature. Once these mechanisms are identified, virtual exposure techniques that can be used when access to nature is not possible can be identified and optimized. Jesus Christ. If we ever oh get to that position, God. just shoot me in the face. Blow it all up. Like, like dear God, I, do not give me like over. virtual reality trees. Don't like put me in like a Soma VR thing where uh, I don't want to. Jesus. I, yeah, like a ready player one. Yeah. Or like a, like just the, yeah, just the, the, the earth is just a smoldering hell hole. But and yeah. uh, Listen, we're can, all just you can put up that Oculus. air conditioning put up the Oculus. Blade Runner 2049 like, yeah, yeah. yeah but with air conditioning and, and like yeah. the Apple Vision Pro no you gotta go they've um, gotta go touch some virtual grass am I right hey sorry yeah <laughs> oh god um but like I'm a big fan though of the last section where they take a good hard look at their own at their own uh, environmental impact so there's a section called <clears throat> weighing the costs and benefits of climate neuroscience <laughs> And I'm I'm kind of convinced that some savvy uh, reviewer was like, 
yeah, you talk you talk a good talk about the environment, yeah. but like, don't you guys use like fucking three Tesla <laughs> magnets? <clears throat> and so, so this to, is to, to research something that, in principle, even can't <laughs> do the things right. that you're, that you're saying it can do. While this article highlights the potential contribution of neuroscience to understanding and addressing climate change, it is important to consider that neuroscientific methodologies can exact considerable environmental costs. For instance, the amount of energy required to operate a Siemens Magnetum Prisma 3 Tesla MRI scanner five days a week is approximately 200 megawatts, megawatt hours, I think, per year, equivalent to the average energy consumption of 18 U.S. homes per year. Conference travel is another major contributor. Travel emissions at one conference were estimated to be 1.3 to 1.8 tons of carbon per attendee. So basically, like they could just stop, and it would actually have a better impact on the environment than doing this research. Like how do you how do you write that and then not immediately just be like, oh, we've got to <laughs> yeah. we got to stop, guys. <laughs> well, they, they guys, they there's no solutions. way to square this. <laughs> it's like I'm like sorry. just bite, just be like, okay, we're we're done. Um, it's like it's so much like, worse to just like acknowledge it. I think like that clear eyed and then like be like, but I swear to God, no, what we're doing is more important. Like we have so a, what we they, need to do is put ourselves <laughs> in the fMRI machines to figure out like, like why just, we're doing this, like why we're actually destroy doing environmentally harmful behavior. So much more dignity into just like leaning into it. Just they've already given themselves solutions, right? VR conferences is is right. For example, the norms around virtual or hybrid conferences have shifted, and there are now multiple effective online platforms. Another viable option involves holding multi-site conferences with virtual links between them. And then you can put some trees in it and like (laughs) like everyone's a winner, you know. With like good graphics, you know, graphics cards they're they're failing to appreciate how much energy a graphics card takes to run. Academics can also help to mitigate their professional footprint by decreasing overconsumption of resources. Directing the use of grant money towards companies that prioritize sustainability participating in civil disobedience and lobbying relevant societies to help advance green policies and laws. No, fuck civil disobedience. That's something people who do that stuff would say. Fund (laughs) eco-terrorism. Put your money where your mouth is. Blow up some oil pipelines. Uh, Fund eco-terrorists to blow up oil pipelines. You want to 12 12 monkeys this shit? (laughs) Is that what you're trying to do? I don't know. And uh, I didn't want to go into this because I think it would have pissed me off too much. But like the section where they kind of like use the neuroscience of poverty as like a springboard to be like, look, they successfully did this. You know how neuroscience solved poverty? <laughs> like we, we can also do it right now with this. <laughs> Let's use TMS to make people feel less poor. Yeah. Like yeah. once we've understood how no, to, it's like, I think we the should... feeling of poverty. I want, I want them to we'll develop... give them virtual food. No, we need to develop a TMS to just fucking like zap the brain, zap billionaire brains for them to give more money to charity and to fighting climate change. Like that would actually be an effective. Like fucking uh, zap some weird CEO brains. But they probably them. have some like counter zap. Go to Davos and zap their brains and then make them. Lori. Lori Santos. Lori Santos. Lori, where you at? Lori, we need you. So this actually is a good uh, entryway into our next uh, segment because I don't think any of us think that effective altruism is like this when it comes to its legitimacy. But that has been in question lately in some circles. So uh, let's talk about that when we come back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Man, it's the end of the year, holiday season. I'm just getting over Thanksgiving. It was great, but let's just say that there are certain issues that me and my family feel strongly about right now that we don't see eye to eye on 
And now we're coming up to Christmas. We're, we're, we're in Hanukkah right now. And it's just natural to feel sadness or anxiety about this. But adding something new, adding something positive to your life can help to counteract some of those feelings or even help to understand those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all of the stress and change, something to look forward to, something to make you feel grounded and to give you the tools to manage everything that's going on. I know so many people who have benefited from therapy, whether it's learning positive coping skills, developing better habits, how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, or at least a much better version of yourself. I could be a better version of myself. Who among us couldn't use to be a better version of themselves? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp, as always, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the part of the show where we predictably like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for all the ways in which they support us. We really appreciate it. I mean, just the interaction that we have with you, the messages that we get from you, they're really the things that keep us going. And we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts for continuing to keep this show going. If you want to reach out to us uh, via email, you can do so, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at Tamler or at Peas or to our Very Bad Wizards account at Very Bad Wizards. You can also join in discussions with some like-minded listeners or not. Uh, Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards. That's our subreddit. You can follow us on Instagram and we always appreciate you rating us, uh, even leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also rate us on Spotify. You can, we, we've gotten a few of your Spotify year end, uh, Spotify wraps. Um, I, we know that a lot of you listen to us a lot more than we would have ever expected. If you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can donate to us via PayPal for a one-time donation. You can buy merchandise. You can buy t-shirts or other clothing items or mugs. And finally, you can support us, uh, by becoming a member of our Patreon uh, membership program. So if you become one of our patrons, you get a lot of perks at $1 and up per episode. You get ad-free episodes all the time. You also get access to little collections I've put together of my beats. At $2 and up, it's the bonus episode tier. 
So $2 in and up per episode, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, our back catalog, including our Deadwood podcast, The Ambulators. Um, at $5 and up, you get all of that. Plus you get a few more things. You get to vote on an episode topic a couple times a year. You get access to our five part brothers Karamazov series. You get access to some of my psych videos and a couple of Tamler's video lectures. Um, at $10 and up, you get all of that. Plus you get to ask us anything you get to, uh, for a monthly, video that we do you get to ask us a question we release that for video for our ten dollar and up per episode subscribers but we also release an audio version for our bonus tier so at two dollars and up everybody gets to hear our answers to those questions sometimes those things go like two hours long so if for some reason you want to hear more of us rambling um, definitely become a patreon supporter and there is a ton of back uh bonus episodes on various movies and TV shows, hours and hours of content that we really hope you enjoy. We appreciate all of you so much. Thank you for the support that you give us in all of the ways that I've just mentioned. And yeah, happy holidays. Thank you very much for listening. All right. Let's talk about um, our main topic for the day. Vlad, you're not only the wokest man in America, and you don't only identify as bi, but you identify also as an effective altruist. Unlike some effective altruists, I think you have the scars to, to prove it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tell the listeners about your connection to the movement when you started getting interested in at least this kind of orientation, this kind of approach, uh, ethical approach. And then, of course, leading up to your kidney donation. Totally. Tamla, I love this bit where we're doing where you'll just say stuff about me that's false. So I would not personally identify as an effective altruist. I think I have a lot of sympathies with effective altruism. I wouldn't necessarily consider myself part of the movement. Okay. Um, You're on the spectrum. Though. I'm on the spectrum. Actually, yeah. Yeah. we've already divulged a lot about my personal life. Ironically, I think my feelings about effective altruism are like really similar to my feelings about like polyamory, where it's like <laughs> philosophically like I'm down. In practice, I've dabbled a fair bit. But for the most part, I don't want anything to do with either movement, like as a group, mostly because of some really weird nerds out in San Francisco. So, you <laughs> right. know, with that, <laughs> that's very funny. With that, you know, with that said, I like I'm a famine, affluence, and morality effective altruist insofar as I'm an effective altruist. So I remember being an undergrad, and I think like Paul Bloom honestly probably assigned it. But I remember reading Famine, Affluence, and Morality by Peter Singer. I think like a lot of times it's sort of like taught is like this kind of like reductio ad absurdum sort of thing. Uh, against like utilitarianism but i remember reading that and i was like oh yeah that's kind of that sort of checks out like i'm kind of convinced by that i don't um, think it's taught that way though i teach it all the time i don't teach it that way i don't know many other people who teach it maybe that maybe teaching is the I, wrong word i feel like i see a lot of people bringing it up as a sort of like gotcha against utilitarianism the, the sort of like demanding this objection and so on where it's like once you accept utilitarianism you've got to live at like a subsistence level and give all your money to charity kind of thing uh tamler do you remember do you remember we had peter singer on the podcast yes we, i did yeah, yeah of course you remember him of course yeah. <laughs> well, more recent. Yeah. significantly actually <laughs> uh it's a, a total classic stone cold totally. classic paper yeah. and like certainly how I teach it is this is a really good argument. What are we gonna say? You know, yes. if we yeah. don't same here, immediate same here. Yeah. 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 So anyway. And like I'm okay. sold. Obviously I'm not like giving all of my money to charity, but it's like 
it was the args is the arguments i think i read the arguments and i was like i'm totally on board we should be doing more to like help you know effective charities and we should be caring less about say like luxuries and stuff like that i think like it was kind of interesting because i think my interests kind of coincided a lot with like effective altruism sort of as a movement so i'm trying yeah. to remember do y'all remember i should know this when did um doing good better by will mccaskill come out 2014 2015 actually that's the yes. srinivasan review is yes. doing good yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah totally. And I feel like the sort of like movement kind of took off there, like with the large focus kind of being on things like, you know, um, if what you're interested in is like helping as many people as possible, like there are these kind of like counterintuitive, empirical based, you know, research based methods that just like work better. So one of the things that's like kind of like nice is Peter Singer brings this kind of thing up a lot where it's like, if what you care about is like addressing blindness, it's like you could spend, you know, this much money to like train a seeing eye dog. And like, that's good. I don't think anyone's going to say like, that's a bad thing. Don't do that. But I think it's like useful information to know that you can treat, you know, 1000 times as many, or like 10,000 times as many people with like relatively inexpensive, say, surgeries in India or like these other sorts of interventions in you know, parts of the developing world. Um, so I think like those kinds of things are really compelling. I think one of the things that's big is like the two charities I was most jazzed about were the Against Malaria Foundation and Give Directly. Because I think like a lot of times our solutions to poverty are just like stupid, technocratic, dumb kind of neoliberal stuff. And I think it's like literally just like the solution to poverty is to give people money. I think like these sorts of like really good empirical research showing that like, look, if you give, you know, money to people who are like living in villages without like, you know, solid roofs over their heads, like they're going to spend the money putting roofs over their heads and kind of stuff. So yeah. those were the for a long time. Places. Give oh. well had give directly as one of their top charities. Yeah. So that was yeah. the sort of era of like effective altruism that I sort of grew up in. And then I think over the years, I kind of got more and more alienated and felt weirder being affiliated with them. Um, I think they were like the initial round of criticisms were kind of like, garner towards like the you know earn to give kind of stuff and i thought that was always a little overblown where it's like if you're going to go into investment banking to like give money to like give directly or whatever people are like oh aren't you just like perpetuating neoliberalism and like shouldn't we fighting neoliberalism or whatever that's kind of like yeah sure maybe but it's like it's sorry. not like these people were going to be political revolutionaries no, if they did <laughs> right. you as a critic of neoliberalism like what the fuck are you doing to like help people who are like dying preventable deaths um, like kind of, it kind of felt like a put a money where your mouth is sort of thing. I felt a lot of people weren't putting their money. So you start getting a little alienated from it. Yeah. When is the kidney donation in relation? So, to yeah. This? So I guess the kidney donation is it kind of got on my radar. Like Larissa McFarquhar wrote about it in Strangers Drowning. So I remember like reading that and being like, oh, that's a cool thing to do. Um, and then a few years later, Dylan Matthews at Vox, he's like kind of like keyed into the effective altruism movement. He wrote this article, like why I donated my kidney and like why you should donate your kidney too or something like that. I remember reading it and just being like, that does not sound bad at all. Um, he kind of like describes what his process was like. And I get asked a lot, like, what made you want to donate your kidney? Um, and I think I don't really have a good answer for it. Because I remember just like reading those things and being like, oh, that's like a thing I should do. Like that, that seems like a really good, easy thing I can do to like make a huge, meaningful difference in someone's life. I think at that point, the only thing I kind of like had to decide was like when I was going to do it. So I remember reading Dylan Matthews article. It was right around the time I was starting my PhD. I think at that point I was like, Okay, well, when does it make the most sense for me to do it? Um, so I figured, like, after I qualify. So, you know, once I have kind of, like, done with my courses, I've, like, kind of, like, defended my prospectus. At that point, I'm just, like, doing my research and writing. And I can be flexible with that. So, like, once I defend my prospectus and qualify, like, that's when I'm going to go donate my kidney. And that kind of coincided with COVID, um, unfortunately. So I waited to do it until COVID kind of, like, died down a little bit and I got my vaccine. And then that's when I kind of started the process. And it took about... Um, a year from there. And then about a year and a half ago, May 4th, was that 2022? I think it was. Um, I donated my kidney to a stranger 
it is living in some 30-something-year-old woman in the John Hopkins area. And there were seven other kidney donations that happened at the same time. I started a chain of seven people. And now that there are uh-huh. seven people in the world walking around who have functioning kidneys now that didn't, you know, two years ago and probably wouldn't otherwise had I not done it. Um, Amazing. So, you know, I think um, I'm glad that you're acknowledging that, Tamler. That's really meaningful to me. Um, one of the things that's been best about it um, is getting all the public adulation and attention. So sharing that story on Twitter and getting all those retweets, I think, um, really just made it all worth it. This is, how, this is where Vlad, it's it's hard to know <laughs> what he really thinks. Because he'll joke about having done it for the clout, and then he really does like the clout. Yeah, it's like, like okay, no, this, right? this, is, this is the kind of shit that drives me crazy. <laughs> where it's like, obviously, yeah, like, it's a, I think, a very normal thing to, like, want recognition for the things you do. Where it's like, if you do what? something... Okay. But seriously, why not just keep quiet about it? Just well, so let me like, give I'm you giving, something. Concrete. I'm lobbing you a yeah, softball. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you why something not concrete. Just keep quiet on it and stop using it for pussy. Yeah, oh, or Dick. Tamler, Tamler, or, or Dick. Sorry, David. I'm going to be on the market soon. Please. So, one concrete reason why I think it's like good to be open about it is like one, the reason I donated my kidney was because like I saw Dylan Matthews talk about it. Like Dylan Matthews like wrote a post about it on Vox, and like in my head, everyone builds it up to be like it's like this huge like monumental surgery, like it's this big sacrifice you're doing. And like one of the things that's blown my mind about it is like it was such a fucking not a big deal at all. Like it really was not bad at all. Um, So seeing him kind of like walk through like what the experience was like, I was like, that doesn't seem bad. Like I could totally do that. And then once I tweeted about it, there are two people, one a stranger on Twitter and one a friend of mine who have gone on to donate their kidneys explicitly because they're like, I saw you tweet about it. I didn't really think this was a thing that was like available to do. And then someone messaged me on Twitter was like, I signed up for the registry, you know, today. And then she reached out to me like six months later being like, I got a match. And then she reached out to me after she had the surgery. And then a friend of mine, Abby Russell on LA, Abby Rules, um, she also like just signed up after she heard me talk about it. Um, so if I can like talk about it and one, get other people sort of like inspired yeah. to do it. That's awesome. And two, like, I think it's good when people do good things and get recognized for it. Like, it's there's this weird anxiety I just, like, don't understand that a lot of people have where it's, like, if I was, like, a really, like, I used to bake a lot more bread than I do now. But it's, like, if I baked a really nice-looking loaf of bread and I posted it on Instagram and some people were, like, damn, that's a nice-looking loaf of bread. Like, that's a good thing. Like, I did something cool. And then people are, like, hey, that's a cool thing you did. And I'm, like, thank you. I know. This feels nice. Between those two things, I favor uh, (laughs) posting about your kidney donation and that process because, like, I really do think, like, I I remember reading the Dylan Matthews article when it came out. And then I remember reading your thing. And they were both, you know, step by step. Like, this is why I'm doing it. Like, I actually don't think you were sanctimonious about it when you posted about it. Your whole, the whole, I remember your read about it on Twitter. It was just, it's not a big deal. And you weren't asking people to call you, you know, MLK. (laughs) You were just saying I should do this. And yeah, of course that's going to like, this is something that nobody thinks of doing. This is something like nobody really considers doing. And so the more you can, uh, it's in that way, it's like the zoophilia. It's like, normalizing it. No. Well, okay, <laughs> no, no, that no, went weird. <laughs> I know. Um, my point was more like this is the thing that like this uh cause needs is people coming out and saying I did it. I did it just to help someone who might otherwise die. It wasn't like like this major procedure that put my life in danger. It was just a normal uh, surgery. Elective seriously. surgery. Yeah. yeah, so like a few things really quick. So one I think this is just like unambiguously one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life that I think I like feel best about. There are so few things in life where just like 
unambiguously like this is a good thing I did and this made the world better. Like there is someone who is walking around now who's probably going to spend 10 to 15 years more with their family than they would have had I not done this. There's a chain of like murder seven... somebody. Sorry. <laughs> what if they murder somebody? I, I've got if we want to yeah, go back to Hitler. I've got some serious thoughts about this. Okay, <laughs> that's um, what they say about the yeah. kids in the drowning it's pond. Stupid. You know, you do that. So the way you do I that, feel like yeah. uh, anytime you teach the singer yeah. article, they're like, "What if the kid is Hitler?" It's stupid. Yeah. Did you ever stupid. think about that? Yeah. This is yeah. as a as a behavioral scientist. <laughs> I think one of the things I have learned to recognize that life is it making decisions between prospects. So I think one of the things that people oftentimes don't appreciate about life is I think it's a lot more like a game of poker than it is a game of chess. So I think any decision you're ever making, there's always going to be an element of like, you can decide everything right. And sometimes you just get fucked over. Like you can play a hand absolutely perfectly. And sometimes there's like the 2% chance that person has like the one card they need to win. And like when that happens, it's like, shit, that sucks. But it's like, you still did the right thing. You should still feel good about the hand you played. So it's like, yeah, 99 times out of 100, the person whose kidney you're, you know, the person whose life you're saving by like, giving them a kidney, they're not going to be Hitler. But if you're like the one person out of 100 who donates a kidney to Hitler, like you still did a really good thing and you made the best yeah, decision you, given the information you had. And like you, you played the odds. About it. Exactly. Yeah. So you I think, go like, for it on fourth and one, even if like you don't get it, it was still the right decision. 100%. So that's, I think, like the one, like everyone, that that argument, which is stupid. And then the other argument people make when they don't want to kind of like acknowledge the fact that like maybe they should donate their kidney is they're like well what if a family member of yours needs a kidney yeah so what is that what is the answer to that do you get automatically like any family member gets a kidney now like at the top of the list how does that work it's slightly more sophisticated than that so first of all um do you know me do you know anyone (laughs) like do you personally know anyone who has ever known anyone who needs a kidney yes yes like actually somebody like yeah that i know well I personally didn't. I feel like most people I know don't. So I think like the odds of like actually having You're a loved young. one needed. True. Maybe that's. But this can't but, be your argument. That the no, odds of not. like my your daughter needing no, a kidney. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Maybe let me finish Tamler. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I think one, it's just like very, very unlikely. But two, like people have thought about this. Like once you sign up to donate your kidney, they give you like five vouchers and they're like, you give this to someone. And then if they ever need a kidney, they just like redeem this voucher and you could only redeem one. And then they just go to the top of the line and then they just get a kidney. Very rarely, if like your daughter- Wait, you get five? Yeah, but only one can be redeemed. Oh. So so I think the thing they're trying to preempt is like- How is that five then? (laughs) So you give like five out and of those five, only one can be redeemed. Right, like why don't you just hold on to your one until somebody needs it and then you can just give them the Yeah, you can't like, uh, because otherwise you can't just like have someone you tangentially know just like jump to the front of the line. Maybe I'm I'm misunderstanding. What's the question? So you get five vouchers, you can only give it to one. Like what's the difference between that and you hold one voucher and then you just give it to the person when they need uh, kidney surgery. You don't have to in advance like predict which of my family members (laughs) are most likely to need uh, a a kidney. I think I'm communicating this badly. So before you have your surgery, you give a voucher to five different people. So like I give it to my two brothers, my dad, Dan Ariely, and I think Lori Santos were my, were my five. So well, shit, like man. What like what am I chopped liver? Yeah, to sorry, David. You yeah. You've been number six. So if any of them ever need a kidney, then they can just like give in their voucher and then the rest of the four vouchers are void. So only one person can redeem a voucher. Can they give it to somebody five. else? No, it's like non-transferable. It's like those five people. You gave Dan Ariely one of your five kidney <laughs> Yes. And I would do it again. Oh. Um, Dad's been very, Dad's been very generous to me. He's been very, very generous. To but me. but that, that's a bad system. I maintain that's a bad system. You should be able to hold on to it until somebody you like, like, how do you know your future wife or husband? Uh, <laughs> Thank might... you for continuing. <laughs> 
uh, might need like a kidney, yeah. but you don't even know who that is. And so, yeah. I mean, talk to the American. I'll kidney talk Foundation. to the kidney foundation. I feel like this isn't. Yeah. I mean, this isn't. A, I think it's, it's, it's all No, no, no. It's a really smart system, dude. Because for exactly that reason, because uh, it's like rebate coupons, you know. Like yeah, then they never get we just used. know that they're never gonna get yeah. cashed in, right? Yeah. Like otherwise you're gonna guarantee that they're gonna get cashed in. Yeah. I so, have never successfully gotten a rebate for anything. I am over fifty years old. Do you also have ADHD, Tamler? Is that <laughs> I think so. To the extent that that's really a thing. It is. I think let's, I'm not, let's not get in that rabbit hole. Um so that's like and then the last bad argument people give is like, well, what if you need your extra kidney? And it's like, um, if you get kidney disease, which is why people typically need new kidneys, it fucks up both of them. Like you don't have a spare kidney. The only way, the only sense in which you have a spare kidney is like, if you get in like a car accident and one of your kidneys gets like fucked up, then you have- Oh, I see. So two kidneys doesn't do us any good. It does not do you Uh, any good to have an extra kidney. Cause like the thing that's gonna fuck up your kidneys is gonna fuck up both. So the only way in which my life is different is I have to take acetaminophen instead of ibuprofen. And there's like a specific kind of like radioactive imaging that they can't inject me with. Which they would never do anyway. Those are like literally the only two things. It does. Well, those were my two big. Do you reasons. get a liver voucher? <laughs> no. Uh, for taking all that acetaminophen, you know. Yes. <laughs> all right. Maybe. No, you you don't. Um, but, they have to give you a pure Vicodin. Yeah. You know. Uh, oh, that's what, they were so stingy. That's what they should do. They were like, so. If they stingy really want to get like people like me and David. In there. Yeah. They gave me, they gave me like ten. We're like, looking, guys, come on! I know. My kidney hurts just thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> but it really wasn't that bad. And then, yeah, I think like the last relevant bit is that it does not affect your life at all. Like on average, kidney donors live longer than non-donors just because like you need to reach certain thresholds of like health to qualify. Right. So like, given all of this, like, why haven't y'all donated your kidneys? Is it um, just like a kind of callous indifference to like the unnecessary death and suffering of others? Or is it like cowardice? Or are you guys just like scared of surgery? I don't want to give cowardice my kidney on my part. It's, to yeah. some Karen, you know? Like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, cowardice for me. Cowardice, okay. But uh, yeah, no, it's a great question. I always ask my students this. Yeah. Everyone here, me included, could save a life or at least be yeah. like, you know, 70 to 80% certain that we could save a life right now. And then I just, I give them all this information in the class. And I think they, their reaction is like my reaction. Yep. Arguments lead there. And yet it's weird. I I feel like you might be like this too, David. It's not in some ways I almost feel worse about like my meat eating habits, especially when they stray from my, you know, like medium strict, like no factory farm foods. Like in some ways I feel like that's worse than, than this, even though if you like look at, you know, the utilitarian units, the qualities, it's like not close because me having a hamburger doesn't affect like how many cows die at all, like ever. And yet I feel worse about that than this, probably because of the the fact that it's an organ. I don't know, but it's not right. I'm not pretending it's rash. Yeah. I think that's like actually a really good analogy because like I used to be a vegan for a really long time. And I've kind of like joked that I've only ever really been a fair weather vegan and that I've only been vegan when I'm not that hungry and my life's going well. So it's been like six or seven years since I've been, that's the, sorry, that's the joke. You'll just be like, however many years I've been in grad school is like how many years since I've been a vegan. Um, But like, I think that's like such a nice point of comparison. Cause like, even though I was convinced by all the arguments, like 
the benefit of it was like so abstract where it's like, okay, maybe if I eat, you know, this many fewer cheeseburgers a year, maybe that'll increase demand like this much on burgers at the store, which will like raise the prices like that much, which will make people buy it that little. And then car production will like decrease by like that much or whatever. It's like, you're just so many steps removed from like actually any benefit at all. And if you told me like your five to seven years of being vegan, like actually really didn't do anything at all. I'd be like, yeah, maybe. But whereas like this, it's like, I know there's someone who's walking around who has like 10 to 15 years of, you know, kidney full life that they didn't have otherwise. I have a question. Has Peter yes. Singer or Will McCaskill donated a kidney? They haven't because they're cowards. Though um, Scott Alexander has, <laughs> which I've recently discovered, which is huge uh. props to that guy. Um, I don't know about his work too much. Like I've kind of like loosely followed him. Some people I really like, I know really, really like him. So like I know Paul Bloom is like a big fan and I've heard a lot of folks speak really highly of him. My sense is he's like, the kind of effective altruist that I don't personally like, but I think is like the good version of like that effective altruist. I think, yeah, I like, think that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so I, he, he has my, he has my respect, like hardcore, like he puts his money where his mouth is. So I think like he's, yeah. he's awesome. And he did it recently as well. But um, again, like this is one time um, my friend asked me why I donated my kidney. And I kept having these conversations kind of like the one we're having now where um, I kind of like give all the reasons I donated my kidney. And then that just does not move anyone at all. And then eventually I just kind of got sick of it. And I was like, I think I just care about other people more than most people do. And he really did not like that answer. And there's no way to say that without sounding like a dick. But I think like probably Scott Alexander like cares about other people more than say Will McCaskill does in like a more visceral way, at least. I think there's like this more visceral level of caring. Um, it's funny. It I'm, is like, weird. Yeah. It is weird that they don't do that. Like kidney donation is this thing where you, it, it almost is like it's either turned on in your brain as an option or yeah. it's not. And like it was turned on in your brain that it was an option for you. Yeah. It's you like, know? like it never felt like there was a moment where I decided to do it. I just like read about it and I was like, oh, that's the thing I should do if I ever get the chance. I think that that um, that's an unfair characterization of people who don't donate their kidneys. I think that like the um, you could surely say I care about people more. But when in reality, it might be that you care about people the same. You just have less fear of going under the knife. Sure. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so like you could frame it as like I my my care yeah. overrides that yeah. concern more, but the difference might be on the other end. That's fair. Like I I, yeah. I think there are people who do all sorts of things because they care yeah. more about I think it also very well be that I just care about myself less. And I think like that would give you the exact same problem. But I, but I think like <laughs> Peter Singer, I don't know, I think, and I think Will McCaskill, yeah. like, I, don't, I mean, I don't really know e either of them, but they do care about people a lot, totally. you know, like yeah. it's just this particular thing. Is, and, and I don't know, maybe it's cowardice on their part. But maybe yeah. it's something else. Maybe it's that that this thing of and of course, Peter Singer's philosophy doesn't yeah. sanction this, but there's some kind of sanctity with the body that you don't do that. Yeah. And no, um, I'm, t I'm totally being tongue in cheek. I'm very yeah. to be clear, like, I don't believe y'all don't care about other people. I don't think you guys are cowards. Um, I think actually that's well, I, you... I do think I'm a coward. About that, <laughs> but, but no, I think you... to that. Yeah. yeah. No, y'all yeah. are being too hard on yourselves. I think actually what you touched on there at the end, like this idea of like body sanctity actually kind of really does resonate with me because I feel like really similar to it in a weird way as I feel about like my tattoos, where I think a lot of it is just like this sense of like not taking your body too seriously, um, where it's kind of like, am I going to think this looks stupid in like 20, 25 years? Like maybe, but like, I don't really care. Um, like, am I going to? Yeah, you're talking to, exactly. You're talking to somebody who has zero tattoos. I don't think Tamler, you have any <laughs> no. either. The only thing I have is like the nipple rings that John Hammond has <laughs> in season five of Fargo. But aside from that, like yeah. I'm tattoo, like piercing. Yeah. No, it's like it's also. Like, but you're also talking to somebody who, like, for a tooth extraction, like I was like, I might never wake up. 
Like, <laughs> yo, okay. Like, uh, that I, I, little, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I like, I would just want to disassociate myself from that. I'm actually yeah. kind of a champ at the dentist. It's the ones where they, it's, it was the extraction where they put me under. Oh, like, I don't yeah. care about all the other stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. like the. It's for me, that's like the transporter machine. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Okay, 100%. Like you're not even you right now. <laughs> so like that isn't what freaked me out but like so many people leading up to it were like are you scared and i was like not at all the one thing that did genuinely make me nervous i don't actually believe that you're ever unconscious when it seems like you're unconscious i think what oh, happens yeah, yeah, yeah. is your long-term memory gets shut off so it's basically like severance yeah. so i was severance, like yeah. i am about to go into an operating room and i'm about to like go down the elevator in severance and then i'm gonna get tortured for like two hours and then i'm gonna yeah. forget it like still for those two hours, you're putting a two hour Vlad uh, yes. is going to suffer for. Two I am going hours. to suffer for yeah. two hours, and then I'm going to wake up like right. nothing happened. And like so that, I genuinely have no mouth. This, did scare I have me no bit. mouth, but I must scream. Yeah, yeah. this but, came up in the Severance episode with Paul yeah. Bloom. He told us this, and it freaked me out. Yeah, and then so no, it's I like, told no, people, I got that from Paul Bloom too. In a lab meeting, Paul Bloom was talking about like the perfect torture thing. Yeah, and I was like, oh fuck, no, totally. Yeah, so 100%. Wait, but here's my question about that, because I always say this to other people totally. and they ask me this question. and I don't know the answer. If that's true, then what does the anesthesia do? It not only like makes you forget, but it also paralyzes you so that you yeah. can't do yes. normal yeah. responses to pain. Yes. So is there's that yes. the idea. There's a nerve block, first of all, which like I think helps a lot of the pain. And then, yeah, I think in the same way that like blacking out from like alcohol makes you stop being able to remember stuff, it kind of seems like you lose consciousness. I think that's exactly what happens. It's not that everybody who undergoes surgery um, might be un in this situation. I think that it's that when people are because the nerve block didn't like quite work or whatever it was, didn't like have the effect because they also have the paralysis and the memory wipe, they'll never know about it. Yeah. And so you just never know when you're going in, whether or not you're going to be one of those people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, and anesthesiology is like, turns out to be like, not an exact science. No, like, that's the scariest <laughs> shit when you realize that. They're like, let's teeter this person on, on the brink of death. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and just trust that they're not in any pain because they can't move. No, it's more of an art than a science. You know? <laughs> I don't know, it's like so weird because it's like, they made me sign like 15 forms saying that like, I was aware that I possibly could die from the surgery. Where like yeah, the chances see. of dying are like so minuscule. And I'm like pretty convinced that like me driving to Hartford at like five in the morning did more to put my life at risk than like undergoing the surgery. And I like asked the surgeon, like I was like in the whole history of the Hartford Transplant Center doing like kidney donations, what's the worst thing that has ever happened? And he was like, there was a bowel obstruction one time and we had to go back in for a second surgery to fix it. And I was like, why am I signing so many forms saying that like I'm aware that I could die when like genuinely there are just like so many things I do on a daily basis that are like more dangerous than this. Uh, let's take a break and then come back and talk about some criticisms of the effective altruism movement. Today's episode is brought to you by GiveWell. Imagine that. Look, we're talking effective altruism today and we're about to go into a bunch of criticisms of effective altruism and especially the emphasis on long-termism but one organization that's not vulnerable to any of these criticisms is GiveWell. GiveWell has spent over 15 years researching charitable organizations and directs funding to a few of the highest impact opportunities they've found in global health and poverty alleviation for people who are living right now and who need our help the most. Over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than a billion dollars 
to these charities. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. There are over 1.5 million nonprofit organizations just in the United States alone and millions more around the world. GiveWell wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. You can find all of their research and recommendations on their site for free, and then you can make a tax-deductible donation to their recommended funds or charities, and GiveWell doesn't take a cut at all. Top charities right now, just I'm looking at it right now. We're, we're about to talk about this in the episode. Uh, medicine to prevent malaria, um, nets to prevent malaria, bed nets, supplements to prevent vitamin A deficiency and cash incentives for routine childhood vaccines. These are all terrific causes. This is something we've talked about a lot. Our listeners alone have given hundreds of thousands of dollars to these worthy causes, and that's something I think both David and I are very proud of. If you've never donated through GiveWell before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and then select Very Bad Wizards at checkout so that you can make sure that they know you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation matched. Go to givewell.org to donate or just to find out more and enter Very Bad Wizards and podcast at checkout. Thanks so much to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by listening.com. What is it? Listening.com is an app that will take text Anything, academic papers, textbooks, other PDFs, websites, or even emails into audio so that you can listen to them doing whatever it is that you want to be doing. So I assume that as a podcast listener, you're used to listening while you're doing other things. Now you can do that with other material, educational material, whatever it is that you want to read. Instead of sitting at your desk or sitting on a couch concentrating and reading, you could just soak that stuff in via your headphones. Listening.com is the best app that I've seen that's able to do this. And in part, this is because of the features that it gives you. So it has automatic chapter detection, for instance. It can pull data tables out of the papers and present them within the app so that you can see them if you need to. It can read math equations. It knows how to deal with technical words or other complicated documents. It knows to skip all the citations, footnotes, and and references even, and lets you jump straight to whatever chapter or section you want to listen to. It even has a one-click note-taking button where it automatically puts the last 10 seconds that you just heard into a notepad if you just press that button so that you don't have to type notes while you listen. So if you want to try this, if this sounds like something that would appeal to you, go to listening.com slash VBW and you'll be able to get your first three weeks for free. That's one week additional than what people would normally get without our links. So go ahead and give it a try. Listening.com slash VBW. Our thanks to listening.com for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Let's let's get to some criticisms of effective altruism. There have always been these criticisms, but with the, the full-on embrace of Silicon Valley to effective altruism 
And of course, like the Sam Bankman Freed, who is a huge proponent of effective altruism and connected with the movement at every level. These criticisms are there more visibility to these criticisms. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what you think about it. I have kind of a leftist podcast circuit. They are, to be put it mildly, not fans of it. The the big, I think, worry is, and, and the reason they'll call it like just a con game, is the turn to long-termism, this idea that we don't just have to like make the world better now, alleviate current suffering and death, but we have to like think about the future. And once you let in the kind of math that allows you to try to predict like future suffering, it all kind of goes to hell and you find yourself giving all your money to stop evil AI because of the 0.001% chance that they'll destroy all of humanity and maybe destroy the earth. Where, where do you stand on them? I have some thoughts on where I stand on some of these, but I want to know just your initial take. Um, I think the long-term, like the long-termism shift in effective altruism is like one of the worst things that's ever happened to a movement ever. I think it is very, <laughs> like very patently, <laughs> transparently, like really fucking stupid. There, there seem to be these like long, you know, well-recognized sort of like reductio ad absurdums against utilitarianism and like certain, you know, uh, schools of decision theory um, that they just basically like leaned into and were like, okay, let's build a whole philosophy and a movement around this. It's like, we know that utility calculus like breaks down once you start talking about like effectively infinite things. And they just decided to build an entire movement around that. They're like... Right. The, you know the amount they took of the utility that. monster and like made and they're like it. yeah like, let's gotta actually, we gotta feed it yeah. we gotta feed the utility monster you guys I am very angry and frustrated about that as a as a general trend in the movement and I think you know um, one of the few posts by Scott Alexander that I have read recently um, I think actually Tamara you sent this to me um, where it kind of like talks about defending effective altruism I think like that that really gives away the game a lot because it talks about like here's all the benefits from like this bed nets and stuff like you know we're saving 50,000 people a year who'd otherwise die and then you get to like the AI section and it's like Joe Biden mentioned artificial intelligence like Chad GPT happened like AI engineers they're freaked out about people dying from like the AI apocalypse and it's like this isn't altruism and this isn't effective they, they've done a really good job of convincing themselves that the kind of stuff that they personally care about as like nerds living in Silicon Valley is like the most important thing for anyone to be ethically focusing on. And they just like sold out all of their principles to do it. And I think like the Sam Bankman-Fried stuff, and I think the Sam Altman open AI stuff, because I think like really, really made that clear. And the last like little tangent I want to go on, because again, this pisses me off so much. I think in general, when people treat charitable giving like it's zero sum, I think that's like stupid and bad. I do think like giving in the effective altruism community like is a lot more zero sum where it's like these are people who are already philosophically on board like they're trying to figure out what the most effective way to give their money is and i'm not gonna say it's gonna be like a one-to-one -one thing but at least like for every dollar that's been given to like an ai charity which effectively is just like paying the salary of some people working at some you know think tank in san francisco like a not insignificant fraction of that like would have otherwise gone to things like bennett's and to like give directly or these like other effective charities so like in a very real sense like i think this has a body count like maybe the only sense in which these nerds have a body count. Um, right. and, <laughs> and I just like, and, and, and just in a way that like doesn't exist for like other ostensibly charitable movements. So like, I genuinely think they've committed like a net evil on the world and it makes me like really, really mad. And I'm like trying to contain that rage a little bit right now. 
It's interesting because, and maybe I wasn't as huge a convert at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but like the way I disagree with some of the more extreme criticisms of it as like just a con game is whatever the limitations of effective altruism and its practitioners and like their motives, like it's just undeniably saved like and improved millions of lives just because of how fucking rich they are, totally. you know? And while I think that like their ways of measuring and their like obsession with optimization, optimizing goodness and measuring goodness and all of that, they can't do that. That said, like they still give tons of money to uncontroversially good causes. Like we have give well. And yeah. like I was just saying, this is not a conflict of interest at all. Every single one of their top charities, malaria nets, malaria medication, vitamin A deficiency. I wish they still did um, give directly, but I think yeah. there was some like math issue with that. But like whatever the criticisms of it, and I want to go into them like because I think a lot of them are compelling. Like they, there's nothing that just goes against that how many lives and uh, and people that they've saved or brought out of extreme poverty and uh, yes long termism is a scam but like like i said givewell doesn't do any of that shit and they're mm-hmm. one of the biggest effective altruist organizations and, and like i was saying before it's not like these people you know that have gone into this movement would have been like political revolutionaries destabilizing the status quo that wasn't in the cards for these people <laughs> and so the fact yeah. that they're giving like a, a huge amount of money to like uh prevent malaria is a good thing you know but here's yeah. where i just might disagree with you like sure. y- you make it sound like you had this good movement and you know it was co-opted by like people that just miraculously found their way towards like giving more money to themselves to stop <laughs> the robots from taking over here's my question was it always going to gravitate in this direct if you have this kind of algorithmic peter singer jeremy bentham mindset uh, along with the kind of people who are kind of attracted to that ethical orientation, you're going to have a, a period where that really goes to good causes. But once you think in those terms, quantification, optimization, the math of long-termism is going to be, it's going to win their hearts. If you make everything about numbers, will it always gravitate in this direction? Because you can just do the math. Like Will McCaskill's new book, like has all these models that justify in the same way that math has always justified which charities they choose to give to, like, won't this tend in that direction like is it inevitable in like a greek tragedy type of way so i think i'm very very sympathetic i suspect it's inevitable in the sense of like just human irrationality and like this sort of like foibles and biases that like all of us have where it's like i think of course the people that are going to be like you know overly representing this movement are going to kind of like convince themselves that their own interests are like the most important thing they can be working on i think like in that sense i think it's probably pretty inevitable just given the kind of folks who are represented in it but i don't think it like follows inevitably from the math i don't think like there's a reason why like the ai apocalypse is going to be like the long-termist cause that they're going to champion instead of say like climate change yeah. my point is the kind of people that will be attracted to effective altruism in the first place yes. where when they're just like using these uh, somewhat made up, but still somewhat not made up ways of measuring quality of life years or whatever, which keep changing, but whatever, like I'm sure they have some way of 
pinpointing good causes, even if not to the extent that they think so. Like the question is whether not whether one should rationally be attracted to long termism, but whether the kind of people who are uh, attracted to this way of doing ethics will be captured by that kind of thinking. Yeah, I suspect probably. Um, I don't know. I think the thing that I find really frustrating is there was the shift from like, what does the sort of empirical research tell us about like what the most effective ways to sort of like spend our money um, happens to be the shift from that to like, okay, if we run the math on these like hypotheticals, like which weird contrived scenario is going to like lead to the most harm in the future. So we should like shuttle our money into preventing that with like absolutely no information at all or evidence at all about like the effectiveness of how that money is being spent. It's like, even if you do want to grant that there's this like this long-term is problem about AI. And if, even if AI is this existential threat, like we're still missing the really crucial component here that was like pretty integral, I think, to like the beginning of effective altruism, which is like, well, what are we actually spending our money on? Like if you're sending money to a charity, like what's that buying you? And I've never seen anyone in this like sphere of effective altruism who yeah. cares about long-term AI, like even attempt to answer that. Like they can never tell you like how many Qualies is like, you know, a $50,000 grant to like the future of humanity Institute or whatever. Like, what is that buying you? Like, they don't have an answer to that. So I think, again, it feels like this Greek tragedy in the sense where it's like, you know, they're subverting their principles for their own self-interest in a way that I think is like deeply ironic and like maybe unavoidable. But I don't think it follows necessarily from like the principles of the movement itself, say. But wait, why there? Why do you keep saying that it's in their self-interest to, to be long-termists? Oh, because it's like there's a bunch of nerds in Silicon Valley who are like really, really interested in AI who've convinced themselves that the most important thing you could be doing is funding research into AI. Like, I don't think that's a Right, but they could... But they could fund research into AI, right? Like, this is funding research into ways to combat the like inevitable like collapse of humanity because of AI. But what it's that not is, like, like that's, just straightforwardly self-interested. But that's like OpenAI, right? Like they started OpenAI like explicitly for this purpose. Like there were these huge grants that were like, we've got to stop the AI apocalypse from happening. So they started OpenAI like as a nonprofit that like ended up developing into this like for-profit company. Which just ends up making like Chat GPT, which everyone's convinced is gonna like destroy the world. Like I think it always like ends up gravitating towards like the self-interested angle for like how do we pay AI researchers to do AI research while feeling like we're doing charity. Yeah, it's thing. just not it's just not at all obvious that it wouldn't be more self-interested to just put all that money into like developing AI, right? Like it's it's like it's it, it, there is a layer there that's added that's not so obviously just self-interest. Like they could just buy boats and 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 islands, right? Like this is still some step, yeah. which I think is why I think T Tamler's view I, I like kind of agree with, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is that <laughs> oh I know, shockingly, which is that um, there is a particular kind of brain that's tickled by this math, yes, and this math l really does lead you to some really really interesting problems. Like if once you once you have all of these assumptions in place, one that we can quantify like things like uh, good, the good, good, yeah. the good. And in that you're plugging in people. Right. And you're you are as a utilitarian foregoing like any concern about rights. Right. Everybody, everybody counts as one on for more than one, all that stuff. It's hard to know why next generation of unborn people doesn't matter just as much as me. That seems like it's selfish. And then you start going down the line and thinking, well, like, why, like, if we're really taking this seriously, 
what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to us as a race, as like us, not as white people, but you know what I mean, <laughs> like as humans? And we're not what's... Nick Bostrom. Here, you know? <laughs> 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 um, and then you're sort of like driven to this, like, well, yeah, it doesn't all of a sudden it doesn't seem so unreasonable. But what you've lost in that whole thing is that like compassion for somebody who's dying and suffering right now yeah. might actually require more attention than the mathematical possibility of wiping out the whole human race. And like that's that is a conclusion that this kind of thinking can't get yeah. you to. Like I can see why they disagree with it and why they would think that this is uh, like the best way to go about um, spend spending money. Now, I also buy there's motivated reasoning. It it is sort of like you know telling people to pay you protection money <laughs> when you're the one when you're the ones threatening them, right? Like uh, no, pr like promise, promise you if you pay us, nobody will bother you. But if you don't, it'll be us. Yeah. But there Where... might be totally sincere people who still Absolutely. do. It. Yeah, yeah, I think so. What I wanted to really ask is. Uh, how much do you think this is uh, really co-opted the movement and how much do you think is just like a marketing sort of like a PR problem, a marketing disaster that uh, Sam Beckman-Fried, Nick Bostrom and and people who are like really concerned with the AI apocalypse, yeah. like isn't most of, well, I don't know, yeah. is most of e effective altruism just doing fine? I think it is. So I think, um, you, you know, friend of the pod, Yolen Barr, he, he sent me a link on Twitter that showed like the breakdown of spending within the effective altruism community. I think probably, if I remember right, maybe like fact check this later, I think it was about like $300 million were spent on like these like public policy kind of like global health charities and like 200 million were spent on, you know, um, uh, AI stuff. And then maybe like smaller amounts were spent on like, how do we maximize like shrimp welfare or whatever? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think like the majority of the movement still is devoted to these, I think like evidence-based sort of, um, you know, kind of like pure effective altruism, as far as I see it sort of causes, I think that will probably stay, but I do think like it is an alarming fraction, you know, 200 million is like not small change. It's like not a small percentage right. of the group. And my sense is from talking to people who are like part of the movement proper is like you go to EA conferences and like, that's all anyone talks about. So I think yeah. like maybe what's going to end up happening is like ideally maybe there'd be like kind of splintering where it's like I don't care if people want to work on long term AI stuff like, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom or whatever. Yeah. Like I think there should be charities dedicated towards like preventing the AI apocalypse like, if that's what you're worried about. Right. Spend it's money no on that. worse than buying a yacht. Exactly. But yeah. I just don't think like I see no overlap at all between that and like what effective altruists are doing. So I think if there is this fracture, I think that'd be good as a whole for the movement, especially since like I think in recent months specifically that it's been th this association with the AI contingent has, I think, been really, really embarrassing for like the whole movement like as a whole. Like in a lot of people's public perception, like effective altruism is just a bunch of nerds worrying about like whether Skynet is going to kill all of us, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So. No, that's right. The thing that was good about your Twitter thread where you kind of went off, you both <laughs> barrels blazing uh, on, was just where's the rigor in like how you're measuring how effective these interventions are that you're doing? Just none of that. Like, you know, I'm sure so many charities got dinged because like yeah. they were saving people at like a suboptimal rate. But but that's the problem with these large numbers. It's like, well, even if we're just, you know, lowering the chance by point zero 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 zero. 
0.00001%, it would be worth it. You almost get excused from the rigor just by the sheer immensity of what you're pre uh, preventing. And it's like you said, it's the reductio ad absurdum of, uh, of utilitarianism that is actually being embraced there. 100%. You know? yeah. yeah. It drives me crazy. It sincerely drives me crazy. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that I can't help but think is that the shift to long-termism is a weirdly safe, and by safe here, I mean like it's, an, it's, a, it's a simple kind of antiseptic way of, of trying to combat, you know, whatever, trying, trying to be more altruistic. Because it is like donating money to a think tank about AI doesn't have any of the messiness that you get in the real world and like the global politics and, and like the, the logistics of like everything that's involved with setting up uh, charities in developing nations, all of that stuff gets sidestepped into a really, really weirdly neat, clean set of like mathematical problems that a think tank can deal with. Meanwhile, like nobody has to get their hands dirty with, you know, like, like, having to go to countries where you have to get 12 vaccines before yeah. you step step foot in there and, and maybe that's unfair to the the silicon valley nerds but like the the better way of saying this is like i respect so much the people who are doing the work where they're actually you know stepping foot in in into like the places that nobody wants to go and helping out the lives that nobody on our side of the world seems to care about too much Fully agree. And I think it's like really telling on themselves if what you're doing to be like an effective altruist is like no different than what you'd be doing if you weren't an effective altruist, which is like living in the Bahamas and trading crypto. Um, maybe that's like a, a reason to look in the mirror and be like, oh, maybe this is all just, you know, me trying to like tell myself a story so that I feel like what I'm doing is good and not just like monstrous and self-motivated. All that is true. They still somehow for a while anyway, and even still. Like at GiveWell, like are just raising a shitload of money for like yeah. really good causes. And so, you know, that's why it's hard to be too dismissive of 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 what they're doing. But I agree, like like I think you're doing the best thing by trying to pull them back from this uh, new way that they're yeah. being effectively altruistic in their minds. I just don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. You know, like I, I yeah. that's the problem. It's an unstable equilibrium that yes. that we had, and it, it like maybe it couldn't hold. But even if it yeah. doesn't hold, it's still going to end up giving a, a lot of money towards people yeah. um, that weren't going to get it. You know, totally. like. What do you think, though, of this one criticism? I, we, we, I really recommend this Amiya Srinivasan essay, this review of Will McCaskill's book. And I don't have anything against Will McCaskill, but like it's a really good review. And I think it raises a lot of worries about effective altruism that have come true like in spades. Uh, this idea that it kind of reinforces this individualist way of thinking about ethics and in that way kind of takes for granted the institutions and the systemic uh, nature of the world right now and just thinks, okay, how do we work within that? And in doing so, props up a status quo. It's not, their, it's not necessarily their intention, but it ends up having that effect, making these rich people feel better about inequality and feel better about like the structures that uh, make it possible. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that 100%. And I'm kind of like shocked at how much like 
note for note that is my quibble with like the stuff we talked about at the beginning of the episode with like using like neuroscience and like psychology and behavioral science to like address these ultimately like systemic problems so i think like there is this sort of like resemblance i think to like this individual level solution to charity is there is like these individual level solutions to, like climate change and whatever else um i agree with that 100 i still think like as an individual within the system probably the best thing to be spending your money on is like bed nets instead of like, you know, (laughs) like I'm going to go, what am I going to, I'm going to spend like that money on like Fortnite skins. Like it's better to spend money on bed nets than Fortnite skins. And that said, like expecting there to be solutions at the level of like individuals within the systems is I think like a mistake. And I think, you know, um, I think that point is really, really good. And I'm sympathetic to it in a lot of ways. I think where I just keep kind of coming back is like, as true as that is, you know, as, systemic as these solutions need to be at the level of the individual still like the best thing you can probably be doing is like sending your money to Oxfam or GiveWell or whatever. So it's, it's, you know, I'm trying to square that circle in a way that maybe isn't satisfying, but like, I agree with both perspectives. I think. I, I don't know if, if this take is right at yeah. all or not, but I can't help but think that um, I don't see it so much as, as utilitarianism being individualistic. Um, but I do really like Srimasan's critique of the focus on the impersonal and uh, that utilitarian utilitarianism brings and that the movement inherited. And she talks about McCaskill basically saying that like he shouldn't be moved by like the, these suffering Ethiopian women um, specifically because that would be unfair to all of the other uh, individuals who need help. Just there is he hugged a, one of them. He shouldn't. Yeah. yeah just cause he hugged one. Yeah. Right. In both Sometimes when I hear people talk about systemic problems and when I hear people talk about this this sort of utilitarian effective uh, mindset, they both seem to me to sometimes be lacking in a firm grounding in the humanity of others. And they, of course, not all, but like I often think that there is just is some deep value to connecting with other human beings at an individual level that that is so fundamental to like what it means to to care about others and to have a human morality that that like i feel like you can get antiseptic in both directions you, i often hear people talk about systemic racism as a way of getting away from talking about their individual biases because they don't want to tackle the fact that they might have like some real problematic like feelings about uh members of other groups and it's easier to donate to like the right cause that will that will do the right thing and address systemic bias. Or it's easy to like Tamara and I have talked do about like yeah. the, the proper yeah, do a workshop <laughs> or say say the proper incantation before your talk or whatever, you know. And and really just like there is again, maybe it's not very effective, but I can't shake the fact that like human morality to thrive and to avoid the like kind of long-termism the 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 natural step toward the extremes we need to just be there and talk to people who are suffering and, and try there, to help i feel them. like there's a big disanalogy that you're making with the people who worry about structural or systemic problems and the people the the strict impartiality that has to come with utilitarianism the disanalogy is is that in principle is true for utilitarianism you are not allowed to care about people closer to you um, that you have some contact with, that you have some, like, that's not, that's part of the theory. It's like embedded in the theory. It's like a core ethical principle of the theory. It's just not true with people who make 
systemic critiques. In fact, like those things usually depend on solid solidarity. Those things usually depend on human connection, even if people can sometimes uh, forget that in the debased form that it's, uh, you know, it appears in uh, diversity training workshops or whatever, like that the kind of person who's making systemic critiques uh, is not in principle barred from caring about other person yeah. people yeah. more I I w- compared to the utilitarian. Yeah, I wasn't making an in principle claim, and like I said, this is totally unfair characterization of many people who are fighting on both sides. Um, I, it's just that I see there is a danger of of adopting actions that keep you away from from I don't know the personal encountering of human suffering. But you're right, Tom. Like, I mean, the best social movements are going to be ones like in, that, that, that are in touch with the people. Like, of course. Yeah. Maybe just to continue my trend of just oversharing too much. But I think this kind of like tension between, I think, different ways of approaching morality. Um, I think I've, I, I really noticed this where um, I had this sense, you know, actually when I was on the show the last time um, in episode 80, you, uh, I was you're on the show. I was, I was visiting my mom because she was dying of cancer. Um, and for the longest time, I thought that like grief had made me a worse person. Cause I feel like when I was younger, my like moral concern was like a lot more impartial where I was like a lot more concerned about things like veganism and like global poverty and stuff like that. And then I feel like, you know, grief has this way of, I think like really narrowing your world in a sense, not in the sense that like this other stuff matters less, but I just feel like the people around you seem to like matter more in a sort of weird powerful way um and i feel like that actually maybe weirdly fits into like this kidney donation kind of thing where i just feel like your world gets a lot smaller but in a way that i actually feel like now makes me like a better person where i just feel like i'm like more invested in the people around me and i'm like trying to do more to you know affect my small corner and like not have these big you know global grand you know generation spanning ambitions of morality it's more just like um i want to make a concrete difference in however many lives i can i think i'm just gonna have a better shot and more effective way of doing that you know in this smaller corner of the world where my maybe my my moral ambitions are a little bit more modest um in a, in a weird sort of way on that note should we wrap this up yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. let's wrap it up yeah, yeah thanks guys that's a it's a nice sentiment to end on um, and it's it's so nice to be back on here. I know you forgot that I was here, Tambler, and I'm never gonna let you. Let I never. Down. So sorry. I never forget. I, like, <laughs> I, I now. I didn't see forget. It. I see it in my head now. But when was that? That's probably like seven or eight years. It was the same episode. Ago. Yeah, it was eight years ago. I looked. It was the same episode that your stepmom was on. You didn't look yeah. like Grizzly Adams there. No. I mean, yeah. I, I like. I swear to God, like right after that episode, I hit puberty. Yeah. So it was. <laughs> no. Like, I, like weirdly, I'm about like. 30 to 40 pounds heavier now than I was then because I like I was really sad after my mom died so I started like going to the gym and shit like that so like I actually got like beefier and now like I've got like a beard uh, my voice is deeper so uh, I, w- I don't blame anyway, you anyway you heard him ladies and <laughs> <men>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but um, uh, yeah I'm listen, sorry, just... sorry for busting your balls Tambler it's it is genuinely a joy to be back um, invite me again on any time it's always such a such a pleasure um, well, if you if you fucking hook us up with vouchers, you know, <laughs> tell tell your friends, tell your kidney donating friends. Yeah. Yeah. If, okay, very yeah. bad wizard listeners. If any of you donate your kidneys, please give vouchers to David and Tamla. Should they shut the fuck up and uh, be nice to me? Again. I don't want Tamler. your voucher. Give your voucher to like my kidneys are fucked. You're not going to help me. You can't save me. The, to, are there liver vouchers for Tamla? Yeah, I need <laughs> liver vouchers, heart vouchers. Uh, <laughs> All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Thanks, bud. The Great Empire has spoken! <laughs> <laughs>
Very bad wizard.